Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. The old song or the newish song or the song anyway says, breaking up is hard to do. And that is certainly the case when great countries pull out of lesser countries as in Afghanistan today. My guest to talk about this is Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Eurasia Center of the Atlantic Council and Linda Gasparello, the co-host of this program. Both of them are highly qualified to talk about the region. They speak some of the languages, they've traveled there extensively, and so off we go. Ariel, why, what has gone so wrong with our intervention, which looked quite promising in the beginning in Afghanistan, and which now is being universally viewed as a catastrophe, or at least in our withdrawal as a catastrophe? We totally screwed up with the withdrawal. Policy-wise, in the long term, it probably needed to happen. U.S. has a very hard time thinking about itself as a global power or as an empire. Uh, we don't want to be an empire. Uh, but after 9-11, uh, we ended up in Afghanistan chasing Osama bin Laden, chasing him unsuccessfully. Remember the Tora Bora when Don Rumsfeld let the Pakistanis go after Osama, and instead, Osama went with the Pakistanis to Pakistan to live there for another 10 years. But in terms of how we did it, what we needed to do in my book, we screwed it up catastrophically and tragically, leaving behind tens of thousands of people who worked with us and for us. And Llewellyn, there's no way beating around the bush about it. I see it as betrayal. As a great power, you don't treat your people like that. And on top of that, apparently there are thousands of American citizens left behind. Linda, uh, as I said in the beginning, uh, breaking up is hard to do. And the end of empire always seems to be a lot harder than the beginning. We have the catastrophic British departure from India and all over Africa. The British pulled out, usually with a semblance of order and left behind often chaos. Uh, we have our own example in America and Vietnam. It goes on and on. We're always looking for something like the end of the Second World War, where there were clear, clearly countries that could be resuscitated into working democracies and viable entities not necessarily everywhere else. How do you see it, Linda? Well, I, I think our, our exit was very disorganized and in Afghanistan. And I think we had planned for something a lot more organized. We had planned to leave a skeleton base on the ground of Pentagon officials and others who would get us through into a transition. That did not happen. I think it's just a mystery to me um, about the collapse of uh, the army. Um, this was an army that in Afghanistan that we had trained, uh, we thought that we had under our command and you know would fight and didn't. And I'd like to ask why not? And I think there is something of what happened in Iran uh, when we left Iran um, as the prelude to this. 
we hadn't paid the army or the Shah had not paid the army. He was warned about paying the army in Iran and instead he paid the Air Force. Here we had an army of supposedly in Afghanistan, 300,000. How many of those were actually paid or were they paid off by, by the Taliban because we hadn't paid them? What else went wrong? The other thing was probably the fact that they were so demoralized because they knew we were leaving. And how about all of our advisors that were there, the, um, the contractors who had left, who kept things going, the supply chain. When the supply chain is broken, you don't really have a working army. But I would say that one of our nesses when we've left, and we haven't really, we've, we left Vietnam, certainly. We left Iran, certainly. Um, we left Iraq. And when we left Iraq, we left something there. But we also created the Islamic State, which went on to fight in Syria and went on to fight in other places and regrouped because of the way that we left. What happened to our intelligence? Why did the president, President Biden, think this would be orderly, think that the Taliban would not rush into Kabul, which, of course, they did? Uh, what went wrong here? Why didn't we know? <laughs> we also didn't know who was planning the Taliban offense. I'm looking at that operation. This is for the books. That was a brilliant operation. And, and I it, do it not, was very complete. 30, I want to, uh, they they uh, encircled. They did exactly the opposite of what they did the last time. Remember the last time they just rolled on this beat up trophy Russian T-54 tanks into Kabul. They didn't do it this time. They went around the borders of Afghanistan, and it's a big country. And they isolated uh, the center, the core of the regime in Kabul. They went to the areas first that were the heart of the resistance the first time they were in power. The Northern Alliance in the north, the Tajik and the Uzbek areas that are adjacent to the former Soviet states of Tajikistan and Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. They occupied all the northern tier. And they, then they went to their birthplace, Kandahar, and they occupied it. And then the research my assistants did told me that they're building uh, a road that will take them to um, Kabul. They were pouring concrete. They brought bulldozers and uh, cement uh, or concrete uh, making equipment. And they were building uh, their own road to Kabul. Uh, and that's what they did before, what the Mujahideen did uh, when they were f fighting the Soviets uh, back in the 80s. Uh, so the brilliant operation by the Taliban commanders, I don't think it was the Taliban. I think it was at least the Pakistani general staff generals and maybe even our Chinese friends. Uh, Pakistan and China today are behind Taliban. This is a great strategic victory for Beijing and Islamabad. And then the next question is the intelligence. You're absolutely right to ask that question. And the answer is you can bring intelligence to the politician. You cannot make him think. The Washington game 
of finger pointing uh, who knew what and when, what did they do about it already started. The intelligence community, which probably was not very good uh, predicting how long the Ghani regime will last in Kabul is saying that they warned uh, President Biden and the decision makers that that regime is not for this world. Look, I don't have any access for classified materials, but I was with President Ghani, former president, should I say, uh, of Afghanistan in Tashkent uh, exactly a month ago, and he was speaking. And I thought to myself, my God, this is the dead man speaking. It was clear to me he will not last long. I did not expect him to last so short. I thought maybe three months, maybe six months, maybe nine months, but not one month. And if I understood that with zero intelligence, I'm sure that the Pakistanis, uh, the Chinese, the Russians who were in the room, Foreign Minister Lavrov, Prime Minister Imran Khan of Pakistan, and others, they all knew that President Ghani of Afghanistan is not for this political world any longer. And then the question is, what did the United States do to prevent its loss of face? I'm not saying we should have stayed in Afghanistan. We probably shouldn't stay there for 20 years. We should not have engaged in nation building, as President Biden said, and I think he is correct. The culture of Afghanistan, of different tribes, of the Pashtuns, of the Uzbeks, Tajiks, Khazara, of the Sunnis and the Shias, is so different than the um, idea, the model of the Western democratic liberal world. For them, many ideas that we stand for, women's rights, gay rights, the environment, they are totally alien if not to say an abomination. And we try to impose it. And we try too hard. We try to pay for their military. We try to do a lot of things. Linda said correctly, what, what was wrong with the military? We were the reason that military screwed up so badly because we did intelligence, we did logistics, we did air support, we did air supply. It's a big country, so we needed to resupply uh, far-flung um, posts uh, that otherwise it would take a much bigger uh, army, a much bigger force to supply by truck. Ariel, I wonder whether there isn't uh, something fundamentally wrong in the concept that we have that we can support basically alien armies to our values and also to our military conduct uh, without assuming control of them through the officer corps. Uh, one of the things the British did, and I've always been interested in the British Empire, having been born into it, in fact, and that is that throughout the empire, and remember, uh, India got its independence in 47, but hundreds of thousands of Indians fought very bravely under British officers in the Second World War, and indeed in many of Britain's wars. Uh, it was a huge source of manpower, but there was an integration, a sense of being part of the British system with British officer corps, et cetera. We have not done that as Americans. We didn't do it with the South Vietnamese. We didn't do it 
we always were external to them with advisors. When I hear the word advisor, I think, oh, here we go again. We've heard about advisors, and I've seen advisors. I've seen them in, 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 in the, <clears throat> the caucuses. Um, it's not the same as being integrated with this force that you're trying to mold. And that might be a fundamental mistake. But it doesn't get away from thing. There is no good way of pulling out, whether you're pulling out of a marriage or you're pulling out of a business deal or you're pulling out of a country. I'd like to say that as far as, as army training goes, I mean, from all that I've read and been told, there was just a succession of trainers over and over again, each with different training methods. But one of the fundamental problems in Afghanistan is that you're dealing with a very low level of literacy. I mean, there are some Afghans they were trying to train who have nothing more than a third grade education, if that. When you're trying to train in a highly technical way, that's going to be very, very difficult to do. And as far as the loyalties went, well, it's hard to be loyal to a Western-backed government. Although I will say that many of the Western concepts that Ariel was talking about with nation building actually happened in Afghanistan early in its history. I mean, in, in 1957, for instance, um, women were allowed to go to university. And again, in 1975, with the change of government. I mean, these things, these kind of things, you know, happened through, um, through Afghan governments that were close to the Soviet Union or, you know, uh, you know Afghan governments that were pre-Soviet Union. The, that kind of a thing was part of the Afghan culture. Um, it will not be under Taliban. And there are Afghan women who are alive today who can remember the time where they went to university in a place like Mazar-e-Sharif um, or who were going, whose, whose grandchildren were women were going to, to universities. And, and I think that that is, is something that's really sadly been lost and is not all of our fault. That was an intrinsic part of Afghan culture for a very long time. You know, uh, I was, uh, as a young man, uh, active in human rights uh, organizations that try to fight for the rights of Afghans who were occupied by the Red Army. Uh, and uh, horrible things were done by the Soviets. Uh, among other things, I remember as a young journalist, I wrote an article about the Soviets dispersing, spreading toys that were uh, anti-personnel mines to maim Afghan children. Can you imagine how evil that was? They had bright toys with explosives and the child would pick it up and his hand would blow uh, off. Uh, but I was in London about a month and a half ago, and I talked to an Afghan shopkeeper there, and I said, so tell me, who are worse, the Shuravi, the Soviets, or the Taliban? And without beating an eyelash, he said, the Taliban are worse. The Shuravi, the Soviets, only went after you if you were fighting them, if you're an enemy. The Taliban will come and rape your daughter, or destroy your village or kill you uh, just because they feel like it. And I hear a bunch of moderate statements from Taliban version 2.0, that they'll keep women working, women in workplace, that uh, they will allow women to study. I don't know how much is that uh, coming from the Chinese 
uh, or others, or they expect donor assistance to their regime because they understand that they don't have much. They have some natural resources that the Chinese are interested in developing. But uh, in terms of real economy, uh, they have opium and they want to eradicate opium. And I'm, I applaud that. I think it's a good idea not to grow opium. Uh, but um, the real test that is coming for Taliban is one, are they going to give shelter uh, to Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other radical organizations a lot of folks never heard of, like the Islamic uh, Front of Turkestan, the guys from Uzbekistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, who want to go into the former Central Asia, go north and liberate, bring the word of Allah and liberate these countries. Uh, are they going to eradicate Al-Qaeda? My sources are telling me they're up to 10,000 Al-Qaeda fighters, and they promised to Zal Khalilzad, the U.S. negotiator, who is ethnic, ethnically Afghan, um, they promised him that they will not allow Al-Qaeda to operate from their territory, but Al-Qaeda may not ask them, may not ask their permission. I also hear that some of the jihadis started pouring to the newly declared emirate of Afghanistan, the new country with a new flag, uh, with a new Sharia law that they said, we're going to prepare the hospitals for amputations. We're going to cut the arms and the legs of criminals and transgressors, but only by the decision of a Sharia court. Well, I, as a lapsed lawyer, may have some criticism about Western courts, but surely Sharia court does not meet the criteria of the 21st century justice. Ariel, uh, to what extent do you think that Iran and Pakistan and China will allow Afghanistan to become this hotbed of terrorist rest? I mean, you know, you can throw all of them into that, into that new country, but I'm sure that there's going to be pushback from Pakistan and Iran and even China if that happens to a large extent. Um, I agree with you regarding China. China has a problem in Xinjiang, uh, in its western province, uh, with their Muslims. We've heard about some of the harsh treatment they are applying to their own Muslim population. I agree with you about Iran, because Iran is Shia, but, uh, Afghanistan is Sunni. There is a lot of friction there, and uh, the uh, Taliban rolled into Dari speaking, Dari is a language very close to Tajik and Persian, and Sunni uh, area of Herat, an ancient city uh, in the west of Afghanistan, very different from the Pashtun areas uh, further east. And the Iranians are very worried about uh, the threat that may come from um, Afghanistan. However, in terms of Pakistan, it's more, more complicated. There is a deep connection, a link uh, between the Taliban and the military intelligence of Pakistan, the ISI. The Pakistanis view Afghanistan as a strategic depth against India because Pakistani big cities, Karachi, Islamabad, are a short tank 
column drive from the Indian border. And that makes Pakistanis very nervous. And uh, they may be thinking about taking all these extremists, all these jihadis, and shoving them uh, to Kashmir, starting opening a front against India in Kashmir. I participated in um, a conference that the Turks and the Pakistanis were pushing um, about Kashmir, and that may be another battlefield. Uh, we also have a lot of radical activity in Africa. Some of these fighters may go and fight in Africa, and Africa is strategic. It's very important. It's huge. It's the fastest growing continent. Uh, it has a lot of natural resources, agriculture, um, and uh, it will be a disaster for the planet if Africa goes jihadi and there is a lot of ISIS and Al-Shabaab and other forces like that in Africa. So, so that management, just uh, one thought. I wish the US, China, Pakistan, India, Russia would talk together as adults in the room and figure something out that they will not, China and Pakistan will not use these radicals against the West, against the US, against Western Europe, and hopefully we together could control that really I like, serious I like what problem. You, I, I like what you said about the adults in the room uh, approach, which in fact we had with the Soviet Union on a number of issues, including keeping the International Atomic Energy Agency in the hands of serious people and not allowing it to uh, be sort of subsumed into the general uh, miasma of the United Nations. Um, and uh, other things, we did collaborate. There was a sort of understanding of the concept of adults in the room. And I think that's very important. The question, I, I know Linda wants to ask you a question, but one that comes to my mind, you mentioned the money. Uh, short of growing poppies for opium, there is nothing that they have to sell the world. Obviously, for 20 years, the biggest stimulus to their economy, such as it is, has been the American presence, the American money, and the American expenditures. What will replace that? The day after for the Taliban will also be a day of reckoning when they find they have no money with which to execute the governance of the country. Well, first of all, there are minerals. There are rare earth uh, minerals. The Chinese are developing some copper mining. Uh, there was natural gas uh, produced uh, in the Soviet and pre-Soviet period. And there are transit projects that the Chinese and others are developing. For example, uh, the uh, Kaza 1000, CASA, um, electricity, high voltage lines going from the North Central Asia through Afghanistan to Pakistan uh, because the hydro energy in Central Asia could produce excess energy and Pakistan badly needs it. The other project is the Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India pipeline. Well, India, good luck uh, if Pakistan and India agree uh, to do that, but uh, there is a potential. Turkmenistan has a lot of natural gas. If China agrees, because China is the number one and pretty much the only customer for the Turkmen gas, uh, they could build that pipeline if Taliban can provide security for it. 
So you go that from is, Turkmenistan. That, 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 that is a picture of a future with little pockets of prosperity and huge poverty of the 35 million people or so of Afghanistan. Linda, you were going to ask a question. I'd like to get back to the idea of Pakistan and Afghanistan as being a very, as I say in Arabic, sawa sawa, a very close relationship. It's going to be very difficult for Imran Khan, who actually is a, a Western figure uh, as a former cricketer. Um, he's something- and, a, and I might say a former English playboy. That's right. Um, he is somebody who could be overthrown by uh, the Pakistani TPP, which is the Taliban's Pakistan extension. That's a nuclear nation that would be overthrown by the Taliban in Pakistan. And I think that could very easily happen. I wanted to know what you thought about this. Is, is Imran Khan going to be like Ashraf Ghani, um, a kind of a, a Western figure that isn't really supported by the population and could be overthrown by a resurgent Taliban? I don't think so. I think uh, Pakistan has this tradition of um, prime ministers, uh, civilians, uh, being overthrown by the military. We did not have a situation in which um, Taliban actually pulls off a coup. If you look at the voters, uh, the radical Islamists do not get more than about 25, 27%. And I think the military, even with Islamic elements in the military, uh, will be aghast uh, if they had a Taliban-style uh, political coup. I think the military will fight to prevent that. Having said that, uh, I agree that Imran Khan, his uh, Sunni, Sundi, um, the Sund um, and um, Punjabi base, he's not a Pushtun. Uh, so his base in the west of the country uh, is limited also. So you see this tribal combination like in many other places in the world, but no, I do not see him uh, as uh, the next Ashraf Ghani. I think Ashraf Ghani was a very um, uh, lonely politician and uh, the corruption tales were uh, always um, famous about him and his predecessor, President Karzai. Um, so uh, the danger uh, is that uh, the Pakistanis will not manage uh, Taliban, that there'll be some kind of a friction along uh, the uh, line um, that uh, the Pushtun tribes do not understand, which is the British uh, drawn line between uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, and that the Pushtuns on both sides of the border uh, will be restless. That's our show for today. I thank Ariel Cohen for coming on, and Linda, of course, Linda Jasperalo. We'll be back next week. Meanwhile, be of cheer and do wear your mask because things are going wrong in some places. Doesn't mean they're going wrong everywhere, and we owe it to ourselves to keep our health. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.